For Radio Catskill, this is Rosie Starr. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Christine San Jose recites a lovely bit of poetry on the very resilient London plane tree. Stephanie Phillips shares her audio recording of forest biologist Dr. Michael Kudish, who presented a lecture on variations of tree-lined summits in the Catskills. All of that coming up on today's Farming Country. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Mexico's Baja California Peninsula is under a hurricane warning, where Hillary, now a Category 4 storm, is forecast to come ashore today. As it moves northward over cooler waters, it is expected to weaken and reach Southern California by tomorrow as a tropical storm, the first time that's happened in more than 80 years. From member station KVCR, Madison Almond reports its rainfall could lead to massive flooding. National Weather Service forecasters say they'll know more about the storm's path once it makes landfall, but they predict high winds and potentially catastrophic flooding. In Riverside County, east of Los Angeles, hundreds of people who are unhoused camp out in riverbeds. Shane Reichart with Riverside County's Emergency Management Department says they're warning people to move. The intense rain may not even be where they're at. It could be upstream, and that could cause the water levels to rapidly rise. So we want people to move to higher ground well in advance of those storms. Many counties in Southern California are also bracing for mudslides, especially in areas recently burned by wildfires. For NPR News, I'm Madison Ament in San Bernardino. The death toll from wildfires that ripped through Maui last week stands at 114 and is expected to keep rising. NPR's Dave Mistich reports the governor of Hawaii is promising to rebuild the devastated town of Lahaina. Governor Josh Green said losses from the fires are unspeakable and tragic, but described recovery efforts as courageous and full of sacrifice. He said once Lahaina is rebuilt, it will become a symbol of resilience. It will be a living memorial to the loved ones we have lost, the native Hawaiian culture that founded it centuries ago, and the values that will enable us to endure this tragedy and flourish again, like the great banyan tree that survived the fire and still stands among the ruins today. Green says he's invited President Biden and the First Lady to come to Maui next week. However, he's asked visitors to hold off coming to West Maui as the area continues to recover. Dave Mistich, NPR News. President Biden is set to visit Maui Monday, where he has offered assistance for as long as it takes. The Hawaii trip comes on the heels of another pledge of support. Biden hosted the leaders of Japan and South Korea for a historic summit at Camp David yesterday. The trio says they're forging a partnership as a new force in the Asia-Pacific region. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Seoul. The Camp David summit documents call out Russia over its war on Ukraine, North Korea for its nuclear weapons, and China for its activities around Taiwan and the South China Sea. Pyongyang, Beijing, and Moscow are, of course, not happy about the summit. They're tightening their cooperation. The U.S. claims that North Korea is already supplying Russia with arms for use in Ukraine. Russia and China, meanwhile, occasionally stage joint military drills around South Korea and Japan, probing the Allies' defenses. It was the first standalone summit between the three nations. This is NPR News.
This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, Stephanie Phillips shares her audio recording of forest biologist Dr. Michael Kudish, who presented a lecture on variations of tree-lined summits in the Catskills. Let's begin our show with Christine San Jose and a lovely bit of poetry on the very resilient London plane tree. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farming Country. For WJFF and Farm and Country, this is Christine San Jose. And you know, even if you're penned up in the city, there is a lifeline. Amy Levy, who lived in the latest 1800s, gives us a London plane tree. And she says, Green is the plane tree in the square. The other trees are brown. They droop and pine for country air. The plane tree loves the town. Here from my garret pane I mark the plane tree bud and blow, shed her recuperative bark, and spread her shade below. Among her branches, in and out, the city breezes play. The dun fog wraps her round about. Above, the smoke curls grey. Others the country take for choice and hold the town in scorn, but she has listened to the voice on city breezes born. There were years when I was very grateful to that London plane tree, but I would have thought because it brings a breath of the country. Along the Poets Row for Farm and Country, this has been Christine San Jose. Christine San Jose's narration about the London plane tree inspired this mindful moment for me. A cool summer breeze rustled the tree leaves in my yard. This August morning was a gift. I was grateful hearing the easy wind, seeing the sway of the branches, feeling the breeze on my skin. A memory of sweltering summers in the city came to mind. The dense heat that makes living beings feel like they live at the brink of an inferno. I offered a prayer of compassion to those who remain there. May those asphalt pathways lead them beneath a London plane tree for relief. Good morning. 
This is Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. Last spring, I attended a lecture by Dr. Michael Kudish. Dr. Kudish was on the faculty of the Department of Forestry of Paul Smith College. His research career was devoted to figuring out why different types of trees dominate in different summits in the Catskills. To figure this out, he explores ancient botanical history by sampling the muck from deep down in local bogs. Lisa Lyons introduced his lecture. Dr. Michael Kudish, Professor Emeritus at Paul Smith's College, taught in the Forestry Department 1971 to 2005, and I have met several of your your students from those times, and they just start glowing when they think about that class that they took with you, or maybe classes. You have a BS from the City College of New York, an MS from Cornell, and your PhD is from New York College of Forestry at SUNY ESF. I would like to turn it over to you, Mike. Let me start out from the beginning, which is my thesis. I was at the New York State College of Forestry at ESF. I had a big question because I had started hiking in the Catskills informally and recreationally for a few years and wondered why the forests on the different summits were different and about the same elevation, same climate, same growing season, and yet markedly different from one to the other. Some were dominated by red spruce, Plateau Mountain. So we have spruce summits. Balsam Lake Mountain, dominated by balsam fir. Then we have other summits like Drybrook Ridge, which is behind my house, that at 3,400 feet has no spruce, no fir, and is dominated by hardwood trees. It's yellow birch, red maple, black cherry, beech, mountain ash. No sugar maple. A few of them are dominated by sugar maples. And some of the summits are dominated by northern red oak with a blueberry understory and mountain laurel. So what is going on here? These summits can be all at the same elevation, same latitude, and yet some have spruce, some have fir, some have both, some have neither, and the ones that have neither, rich hardwoods without sugar maple, or you can have sugar maple, or you can have oak. So this is what my thesis basically set out to do, to figure out why these summits were all different. So I made it a lifelong study, and what we celebrated 50 years of my thesis two years ago. So it's 52 years ago I've been working on this project, but I have a much better understanding now. For the first 25 years, I could go back about 300 years. That's as far as I could go back until I discovered bogs. So that up until 1995, I could only go back about three or 400 years. And one of the ways of doing it was tree rings. Trees record their own history by their rings. But if it had a good year, a bad year, a drought year, a wet year, a cold year, a diseased year, or a warm year. So how far can you go back in time with trees? Well, the oldest trees in the Catskills are about 300 years. So I could go back only to about the year 1650. Another way of getting historical information is history. You can read written history going back 
to the time of European settlement, which would also be about 300 years in the 17th century. So that's as far as I could go back in time. So you have books and written records, and you have tree stumps and rings. Heart Lake in the Adirondacks is a place where a colleague had done some studies. When I was teaching at Paul Smith's, we had a bunch of graduate students who were using the college laboratories in the summer when classes were out for their field work. And there was a fellow named Stephen Jackson who was doing his thesis on Adirondack lakes and ponds and bogs and was able to, with coring devices, pull sediments out of lake bottom, such as Hart Lake, H-E-A-R-T, and also peat specimens out of bogs, and look through the peat specimens and the lake deposits and find plant fossils, plants that had been partly or fully preserved in the peat or in the lake sediments. What was unusual for that time, which was the 1980s, was that up to that time, most people studying forest history would use pollen, but he was using what we call macro fossils, fossils that are big enough to see with an unaided human eye. You don't need microscopes to see them. Things like pieces of wood and bark and roots and cones and conifer needles and seeds and fruits. And I thought for myself, if he can do that for the Adirondacks in Hart Lake and in a half a dozen other places, could I do it in the Catskills? That is, would there be bogs with peat? And the peat would be old enough, radiocarbon dated. And I could look at fossils that had been preserved well enough to be identified. And could I reconstruct the history going back more than 300 years? And the answer is, and how? And the solution is bogs. Bogs record their own history. So we have to define wetlands a little bit. Marshes and swamps don't interest me. But they're wetlands. Yeah, yeah. They're not peatlands. They don't preserve peat. A marsh generally has herbaceous plants. Grasses, sedges, wildflowers, herbaceous stuff, cattails. So a marsh generally doesn't have trees and shrubs. It's generally herbaceous plants. And you go down maybe six inches or a foot, either you run into more water or you run into mineral glacial dump, glacial material. I don't want that. I want peat. What is peat? It's an accumulation of dead plant material in different degrees of decomposition. So a marsh doesn't interest me. The next would be a swamp, which also is a wetland, but it's not a peatland. This is the shore of the East Branch Delaware River, just above Margaretville, the ridge behind my house. Here it's a wetland. This part's more of a marsh, but this part here has some willows and alders and other uh, shrubs and trees that grow along rivers. So this would be a swamp. And you probe down through here, and the organic matter, that is the dead plant material, is maybe only a few inches to a foot deep. How far back in time will that record go in that page? 100 years, 300? I can do that with tree rings in, in written history. I want to go back. I mean, really back. Thousands of years back. And a swamp and a marsh won't do that. So we have a bog. And the bogs, which are unique wetlands, have low oxygen, have a unique combination of plants, and 
what happens is if you start probing down through here, you can go down one, two, three meters in the peak, and you can go back thousands of years. And that's when you can really reconstruct the history. So fens are something like bogs. They're peatlands, but they're, they're different vegetationally. They're generally forested. They don't have an open mat. They may or may not have a pond. So, so we have bogs and fens. If the bog or fen is shallow, a shovel will do it. If it's about as deep as a human arm can reach, about two or three feet, then we can use a shovel. It's easier to carry. But times will go back five, six, seven thousand years with a shovel. And it's a lot of work. Not all of it is comfortable. Here I am. And I'm uh, to try to keep my, my knees dry. And I've dug the hole, and my hand is way down to the bottom, scooping out the peat. And I have to be very careful not to contaminate. Contaminate means that in that hole, you can have peat near the surface, which is yonder, falling down by gravity into the bottom of the hole. And I don't want the, the younger peat on top mixing with the lower, the peat at the bottom, which is older, or it will follow up my radiocarbon dates. So I have to dig from the side and clean out, constantly clean out all this younger upper peat that I don't want because I have to be very careful not to contaminate. Okay, so if it's shallow, the shovel works. But suppose the bog is deep and a human arm can't reach. Dr. Kudis showed us his scooping device. The metal scoop has yard-long extension rods, nine of them and he can screw them together to take very deep samples of peat from a bog. He talked about a bog where he scooped up a sample from 16 feet down. And what happens is that this flap stays open, and you push it down to the desired depth, and then you have to rotate the whole device, which closes the flap, and when that flap closes, it pushes in the peat into the chamber. And then you pull the whole thing up out of the ground and you have a peat sample in that chamber. That's how it works. Anyway, this is uh, called Pine Swamp, line number 357 in the catalog. It dates to about 10,000 years. And it's about 5 meters deep, which would be about 16 feet. The deepest bog, not the oldest, but the deepest of the Catskills. It's the only bog in the Catskill region where we needed all nine meter, one meter extension rods. This is a this is a deep one. We go down five meters, which is about sixteen feet. Dr. Kudish described a bog at Flying Trillium Gardens and Preserved in Liberty. He wondered why he couldn't get bog material from older than about ten thousand years from that bog. One of the things that puzzled me is why it's only about ten thousand years old. Because we know that it shouldn't be 10,000, it should be about 15,000. So there's about 5,000, 4 or 5,000 years of peat missing. And it wasn't until March 5th, 2022, that I figured out what's going on. We had a 47-hour power outage in my house. I was standing in front of the kitchen window writing because that was the only light source. And I was, I was able to think, what's going on with these bugs? Why are some of these only... 10,000, 9,000, 11,000 years. They should be 15. The basins, the geologic basins are 15,000. What is going on? Well, I finally figured it out. And basically what I think has happened is that it's, this fen has lost its first four or 5,000 years 
of peat. It's gone. It rotted. And why? Well, look up here. You see all these dead trees in the background? You know what that means? Beavers. And I'm sure this is not the only time in 15,000 years that beavers have come into this thing. What do beavers do? They flood it. They remove the forest. The sun can get right down on here. This is heated up. It warms up. The heat is transmitted down even meters. And with the warmer temperatures down below, because it's an open, sunny wetland, the peak rots at the bottom. So we've lost the first four or 5,000 meters of peak. Same thing happened in this log, but not in the fen. Here's the core. Here's the peat sample. It's just come out of the, the fen. It's full of peat. Then you open up, lay it down, open that, and open up the flap. And there's the peat. There's a chunk of wood. There's a ruler, so you can measure the different, sometimes they have different strata or layers. There's a piece of wood. This is peat. Dr. Kudish explained that sometimes instead of organic material, he finds a layer of silt in the sample. He postulates that the silt washed into what once was a pond. And in other layers, he may also find evidence of water plants, particularly seeds that he's able to identify. What else can we learn? Well, this is a core taken out of, this is silt. The brown stuff is paint, but below the paint, this is silt. It's mineral material. It's like very, very fine-grained sand, bigger than clay and smaller than sand. It's silt. Probably one quarter or one third of the box have silt at the bottom. What did that mean? It was over the water, and the silt washes off from the surrounding upland around the wetland and settles in at the bottom and quiet water and accumulates. So not all the bogs and fens have them, but a good fraction, maybe a third, have them. And it tells you that this was a pond. More proof that it was a pond. Not only that vegetation, you got the silt. Why is it gray silt? Because it came out of gray shale and sandstone. This is Bog 322 Maple Crest. The silt there is red. What does that mean? It means that the runoff, this is going back 13,000, 14,000 years ago. The runoff from the upland surrounding the bog was full of mineral material that came from red shale and sandstone, so you have red silt. And there's the peat on top of it. And then at one point, the silting stopped, the vegetation, the forest moved in, and you get the peat starts accumulating. You've got the whole story written right there in front of your eyes. Okay, what else? You find seeds of aquatic plants in a lot of these fens and bogs. This is white water lily. Uh, you find the seeds of these actually more like yellow water lily, but here's an aquatic. This is white water lily. Nymphaea odorata. Not only have Nymphia odorata, but you have this. This is a species of Potomagiton, pond weed. And you find the seeds of these very well preserved in many of the wetlands. And of the Nufar Advena, the yellow pond lily, you find seeds of those. These are open water floating aquatic plants rooted at the bottom. And you find them in wetlands now that have no more open water. So it had to been open water. You'd never know that without the bug study. Here's the Lickia marindinaceae. This is called three-way sedge. It grows in shallow water at the edges of ponds, the edges of very slow-moving streams. This is very common, very distinctive seeds, and very common in a lot of the wetlands that are no longer ponds 
and you know that they must have had shallow water. This is on top of Bob, uh, on top of Balsam Lake Mountain. Bob 301 has dilithium. That means it looked like this at one time. No more open water. Okay, here's a close-up of three-way sedge. It's called three-way sedge because when you look down at it from the top, the leaves go off in three directions. Okay, hemlock. What else can we learn about the Catskills history from, from blocks? Well, here's a fen. It's got young hemlocks growing in, older hemlocks. A good number of our fens have hemlock. Millbrook Ridge. If you know Kelly Hollow, if you've ever been to Kelly Hollow, which is a famous recreation site, just south of it, up on Millbrook Ridge, in a little saddle, this bog and it, its neighbor bogs have yielded a large number of fossils. This is a shallow one, and yet you can go back 7,000 years. And it's got hemlock, hemlock cones, closed because they were wet. Pull them out. Next day in my makeshift lab in the motel room, they dry out and they open up to daylight for the first time in five or 6,000 years, hemlock cones. And wood, and this is not the only one. There was hemlock up here on top of Millbrook Ridge in two bogs, and I think I've got three or four other bogs in which hemlock used to be. This would be 6,000, 5,000, maybe 4,000 years ago, and it's no longer there. And you say, oh, Willie Adelgid. No, 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 there was no Willie Adelgid here at that time. Uh, I'm trying to figure out what the problem is. Of the, uh, a lot of people talk about the hemlock crash during the Ipsothermal. Uh, that is, that the population of hemlock really went down about five, 6,000 years ago throughout the Northeast U.S. and has slowly rebounded since. I'm not getting that much of a crash in the Catskills, but I do have about a half a dozen dogs which no longer have hemlocks. So we know that some bogs, which have no hemlocks today, used to have them. So now you know how samples from bogs can tell us the botanical history of the Catskills, dating back 15,000 years. Our bog expert today has been Dr. Michael Kudish, Professor Emeritus from the Forestry Division of Paul Smith's College. If you have ideas for future Now You Know segments, email me at stephanie at wjffradio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. Please visit our website, archive.wjffradio.org, Farm and Country, August 12th, to hear Joseph Johnson's interview with forest biologist Dr. Kudish on the subject of plant fossils from soil samples in the Catskills. There are remarks from Carolyn Summers, who hosted a field trip in a bog at her Flying Trillium Gardens and Preserve in Liberty, New York. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteer Christine San Jose with her poetry narration and volunteer Stephanie Phillips whose skillful audio editing brought us the lecture on treeline summits in the Catskills. Special thanks goes to our guest, forest biologist Dr. Michael Kudish. Very special thanks goes to Lisa Lyons from Morgan Outdoors in Hurleyville, New York, who organized the Bog Lecture Tour event 
with Dr. Kudish in late May, Lisa coordinated and communicated the logistics of the lecture at SUNY Sullivan and the field trip at Flying Trillium Gardens and Preserve in Liberty, New York. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening local to Farm and Country and supporting Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Listen on air at 90.5 FM, on your phone or smart speaker, or online at wjffradio.org. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit, taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org Trains have played a big part in American popular culture and in Britain and Ireland too. So next time on The Wagalode Amongst Us with me, Graham Rice, on Radio Catskill, I bring you songs about trains. Join me, please, on Sunday afternoon at 3. It took Odysseus 10 